Blog Talk Radio.
Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, April the 23rd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing battles over the control of Ukraine and the role of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the Pentagon in the conflict. There's been another attack on a seaside restaurant in the Somalian capital of Mogadishu. We'll have details on that report. A tanker off the coast of Tunisia, which was disabled last week, had no fuel on board, according to experts. And the ousted uh, president of Guinea, Alpha Conde, has been released uh, by the military regime, which overthrew his government uh, several months ago. In the second hour, we examined several important international issues involving the security situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We'll also look at the impact of flooding in the KwaZulu-Natal province in the Republic of South Africa, as well as the continuing clashes between Palestinians and the Israeli police at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Finally, we look back at a historic speech delivered by Malcolm X uh, in Detroit on April 12, 1964, discussing the question of ballots or bullets. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with the TPOK Jazz Orchestra uh, from the album entitled Franco in Paris uh, from 1966. Let's listen in. Oh, 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 oh,
Mamia tango yo patrona ngai Kalisa mwashina banango omawa Tango na zarati koteka sikaretio Nazwa kamea na bokolo kubano
And according uh, to the Russian military, uh, the air defense systems shot down Ukrainian Su-25 aircraft in the Kharkov region. At the same time, the Panzer S crew shot down two uh, Tokshayu tactical missiles in the air around the settlement of Chernobabka. Uh, Major General Igor Konashevkov uh, announced uh, earlier today. Russian air defense systems shot down Su-25 aircraft of the Ukrainian Air Forces in the Novaya Dmitrovka area of the Kharkov region, uh, the general said. The Russian Air uh, Space Forces hit 66 military facilities in Ukraine overnight, including three warehouses with rockets and artillery weapons and 58 areas of concentration of Ukrainian forces and military equipment, Konashevkov announced. Operational, tactical, and army aviation of the Russian Aerospace Forces hit 66 military facilities of Ukraine during the night, including three command posts, 58 areas of concentration of Ukrainian forces and military equipment, as well as three warehouses with rockets and artillery weapons, Konashevkov stated. The Russian Aerospace Forces also hit 11 Ukrainian military facilities with high-precision air-launched missiles, and destroyed up to two companies of the armed forces of Ukraine. Konashevkov said over over the night, high-precision airborne missiles of the Russian aerospace forces hit 11 military facilities of Ukraine, including seven strongholds and places of concentration of forces and military equipment. As a result of the strikes, the enemy lost up to two companies, 25 armored elements, and uh, vehicles according uh, to the military spokesperson. And uh, in other news, uh, in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia, a bomb blast uh, by an Islamist extremist rebel group uh, hit a popular seaside restaurant in the capital of Mogadishu. Uh, Recent reports indicated that at least six people uh, have been killed. Uh, The ambulance services officials uh, made this statement. The explosion was detonated uh, by a suicide bomber who had been denied access inside the restaurant where the Somalia police commissioner and several lawmakers were having dinner. The Somalia police spokesman, uh, Major Abdi Fatah Adin Hassan, announced at a press conference uh, earlier today. The explosion occurred uh, last night uh, when many patrons gathered for an iftar meal to break the Ramadan fast. The restaurant is frequented by government officials. Those killed were mostly civilians and seven other people were wounded. Uh, the director of the Amman Ambulance Services, Abdul Qadar Adan, uh, told the international media this by telephone. The blast caused uh, huge damage, uh, he said. Some security personnel were killed in the blast, but police did not specify how many. Uh, Somalia's al Sabab. Uh, organization has claimed responsibility uh, for the explosion. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, a commercial tanker that sank off the Tunisian coast and was believed to be holding 750 tons of diesel fuel, in fact, held no fuel at all, according to Tunisian naval officials. The ship's crew has been detained on suspicion of criminal activity. The sinking of the Zello ship uh, last week raised fears of a potential fuel spill in the Mediterranean. Uh, Tunisia's environment minister, 
activated an emergency response plan in neighboring Italy, uh, sent a barge with pollution clearing equipment uh, to the area. The ship's captain initially said it contained 750 tons of fuel, but after the Tunisian and Italian divers inspected the sunken ship, they found no fuel in its containers. That's according to Rear Admiral Mesri Latif, and he told this uh, to uh, the conference on uh, Friday. And uh, finally, uh, Guinea's ousted President Alpha Conde uh, is has been released and can receive visitors. That's according to the military regime that overthrew him uh, last year. Conde became uh, Guinea's um, <clears throat> democratically elected president in 2010. However, the 84-year-old was deposed uh, by army officers last year and replaced by Colonel Mamadi Dumbaya. Uh, he was allowed to go to the United Arab Emirates for medical treatment in January, coming back to Guinea on April 10th. His party, the Rally of the Guinean People, the RPG, has said that he was not truly free before or after his trip and demanded his total <clears throat> unconditional freedom. To back up its call, the uh, RPG suspended its participation <clears throat> at a junta-organized national reconciliation conference in protest uh, of his detention. A statement uh, by the, <clears throat> published by the junta on yesterday said that Dumbaya informs national and international opinion that the former president of the republic is finally free. While continuing to benefit from adequate protection, he can receive on-demand members of his biological and political family, friends, and close ones, uh, according uh, to the military regime. Uh, the statement said Conde will stay at his wife's house in the capital of Conakry until his own private house is constructed in a suburb uh, of uh, Kipi. Uh, the dignity and integrity of Professor Alpha Conde will always be preserved, the statement said. The coup followed fierce protest over Conde's successful bid uh, for a third term in office, which critics said breached uh, the Guinean constitution, uh, Dumbaya who has been sworn in as interim president, has promised to restore civilian rule, but resisted international pressure to commit uh, to a date. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you want to log on to our website, just go to the following URL, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you want to um, also uh, listen to this program, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, all you need to do is uh, go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. You can have access to today's program for Saturday, April 23rd, 2022, along with over 1,100 other archived editions and episodes of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. 
We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was the legendary voice of uh, Phyllis Hyman uh, with the Philadelphia sound, I Found Love. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 23rd, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in, and Abayomi Azikawe is my name. I am your host. And uh, right now we want to move into a series of reports on various uh, geopolitical regions uh, throughout the world. We'll start with the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, related to a meeting that was held uh, earlier this week uh, about the security situation in that mineral-rich and geographically vast country in Central Africa. Let's listen in. Starts with this. East African leaders have issued a warning to armed groups in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The bloc has urged armed groups to choose dialogue or be considered enemies of all. At the gathering in Nairobi, Kenya, leaders from Uganda, DRC, Burundi and Rwanda have agreed on a dialogue between armed groups and the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo. They say failure to do so by rebels will result in the regional force deployment to root them out of the region. This decision was issued in a joint communique after the leaders met under what is known as a heads of state conclave on the DRC. It's the first concerted effort by members of the East African community to have armed groups in the Eastern DRC end the violence. To discuss this further, we're joined now by Senior Training Coordinator for the ENACT program at the Institute for Security Studies, uh, Willem Els. Uh, a very good evening to you, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. So let's just take it back a bit, circle on to how we got to this point. By joining the EAC, the DRC increased the bloc's population by a further about 90 million people. So does that make security of the region even more pressing to propel this move? Uh, good evening to you. Yes, we can see that uh, 90 million people were added to the bloc, but also almost $50 million dollars. In, uh, in the GDP that, uh, that, will, that is expected to rise. So uh, if, you, if you want to, to, to look at that, you have to look at the country of DRC or the Democratic Republic of the Congo. That is one of the biggest countries in Africa and the biggest country in the region. Uh, it, it borders to close to nine uh, uh, countries, uh, and it's also part of SADC, as you said, mentioned in, the, uh, in your introduction. So... Uh, if you look further at the, the Lakes region, that is your, your uh, eastern part of the DRC that borders with countries like Uganda, uh, uh, Rwanda and Burundi. Uh, it, it, it's been a volatile area uh, for, for quite some time. Uh, that is why you have the MONUSCO, uh, the UN forces there, where South Africa is also part of, uh, uh, that has been fighting there for some time, not fighting the peacekeeping mission. And uh, then also you have some, uh, since uh, November of last year, you have uh, Ugandan forces uh, that actually moved across the border after there was a twin attack uh, near the parliament buildings in Kampala by a terrorist group or a uh, extremist group uh, called the uh, Allied Democratic Forces that actually originated in Uganda but is now based in the Kifu, North Kifu area of uh, the DRC. So 
what is uh, an international border for, for these countries is actually just a river to cross uh, for these extremist groups. Mm. Now, I want to talk about uh, why has President Felix Tshisekedi sought the EAC admission when the DRC is already a member of some of the continent's eight other regional economic communities that you mentioned, including uh, the Southern African mm. Development Community. I think the question here is, does a combined military force mean the possibility of quelling the endemic violence is now more realizable, despite the fact that the DRC has deployed its own military and there's countless international peacekeepers, including from these regions? Yeah, you say uh, you mentioned it correctly. It is it's peacekeeping uh, uh, missions that are there. You know, and it's difficult uh, to, to, to keep peace where there's not really peace. Uh, so uh, it all boils down to the mandates of these different uh, 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 groups and, and uh, uh, missions that are deployed in the country. So first of all, you have to look at the demographics. It is volatile. It's a it's a it's a, a, a area that borders to most of these or to these three countries that we mentioned, where you've got extremely porous borders. There's a lot of trade, but also a very big illicit economy that moves back and forth uh, uh, to this region. So that for on, on the one hand. On the other hand is, you know, the, the poor uh, uh, or the lack of good governance that we saw in the recent past in that area led to a lot of dissent and discontent with the people in the area, with the government of, of, of uh, DRC. Uh, and uh, these people are now prone to, to actually uh, fend for themselves. Uh, as you mentioned, or I mentioned earlier, that the DRC is actually an extremely big country, you know. And if you look at the, ca- the capital of, uh, of the DRC, that is in the extreme west of the country, and we see that these areas that we are talking about now are in the extreme, extreme eastern region of the country. Uh, you don't have a lot of uh, a very good infrastructure between the capital city and these areas, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, it is very difficult for a country that, that does not have uh, uh, the the financial muscle to really service these areas in terms of, of good governance and to deliver the, to, uh, on, on, on the social goods that they have to uh, deliver in terms of the, the mandate with the, with the government that, that these voters have got. So, so these voters are actually fended, uh, left to fend for themselves to a great extent. And uh, it makes it very volatile area for these extremist groups to then come in and uh, they, they, they win the hearts and the minds of the people, but also on the one hand, and on the other hand, they also come in because of the lack of presence uh, of uh, the uh, military forces of the, uh, the DRC. They actually have more or less a free hand to then uh, uh, rule and, and to, 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 to serve, uh, serve their purposes there. But another thing that we also must remember, that is one of the most mineral and resource-rich areas uh, in Africa. It's extremely rich uh, in, 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 in minerals, and that has been exploited by these military, uh, by these foreign groups, and also uh, these militant groups uh, that have a stake in the mining and the illegal mining of these uh, minerals uh, for, for their own purposes. So, uh, well, it, it's let me just jump in of, there and say this, because the reason I ask this is, mm. as you rightly mentioned, I mean, um, I have been on several occasions over the years met with the different military groupings. As you say, the mandate is very important, but these military forces, mm-hmm. a lot of them 
are conflict fatigued. They're almost desensitized to the pain of the communities they serve, the killings they themselves have been accused of being complicit. And I'm wondering what will be new with this new deployment. SADC has had forces deployed in the Eastern DRC since 2013 as part of the UN Missions Force Intervention Brigade. But now the question is, which regional economic communities or, uh, will lead on resolving the major security strategy here? Um, who's going to take lead? Uh, first of all, we, we don't know what the mandate will be of this uh, force, should it be deployed. Uh, that, that will determine to a great extent uh, uh, how, they go, how successful they're going to be and how they're going to operate. Uh, we know that there are countries uh, in this block that are also have a lot of experience, uh, for instance, uh, deploying uh, troops uh, to, with, uh, in Somalia uh, with, a, with a, a mission there. So, so Kenya uh, is, is, is very strong in that. Uganda is very strong in that. And we also see that Rwanda. Uh, that has been a big presence in, 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 in the Central African Republic. It's a big presence in the DRC as well, uh, and also has a big presence in uh, northern Mozambique as we speak. So those are the countries that we believe uh, they, uh, that will, uh, will take the, the lead in this. But, you know, one thing that we just need to understand here, and I think that is also maybe uh, 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 you can ascribe the failure of, of, uh, of, of, of these missions in the past, is that, you know, if you go into an area like this where the people are angry, you go into an area where people are exploited, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it, it boils down to good governance. It boils down to a lack of governance. And, 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 and the people do not, uh, there's a dissent that grew because of that. So if you now go in with a military force, one-dimensional, try to curb the violence and try to, 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 to bring, bring about peace, what about the rebuilding? What about, what about uh, service delivery? What about what these people really need in order to turn this whole thing around and to restore trust into the government? So I, I think what will make this uh, uh, deployment of the EAC uh, different, if they can manage to bring that mandate to be more than just one-dimensional, and, and that means military, to bring in different other projects along with that, restore the peace, and then bring in the projects to, uh, to, to, to uplift the people and to restore their confidence in the government. So what about uh, the resultant, because I don't think it's, it can be avoided. I mean, part of the reason the DRC is in such turmoil is because of uh, the cross-border incursions, uh, the uh, tensions between the surrounding countries within the Great Lakes regions. You mentioned Rwanda's appointment of troops to Mozambique last year. Now, that was uh, ahead of um, the SADC forces. That angered mm -hmm. some member states by putting SADC solidarity and influence in Mozambique against Rwanda and what was seen as unilateral interests. Could this also have uh, a similar impact? You rightly mentioned that uh, yeah, Rwanda has been deployed in a, in a SADC uh, region without being a member from SADC, and that created some dissent and some discomfort among some some of the countries within SADC. But we also understand that they have been invited there by the Mozambican government, who is a sovereign country, and that created a lot of uh, challenges. 
that it seems they are starting to sort of sort out now. We see better cooperation, etc., between the Rwandan forces and the Southern forces. But to come back to to uh, the DRC and what is happening there. Uh, like I said in the beginning, uh, because of the porous borders that you have there, uh, you know, uh, th- these people move back and forth and back and forth uh, 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 like, like it's, it's, it's just crossing a river. And, uh, and, and, and the, 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 the extremists also exploit that. So what you had, for instance, you had the ADF that originated in, uh, in the Uganda. They came under a lot of pressure because it's a bit more, uh, a rule of law is a bit stronger in, 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 in Uganda than it is in the, uh, in that areas in the DRC that is affected. So, uh, these groups just, uh, moved there and now they are launching attacks not only in uh, the DRC itself, but also they are launching attacks back in Uganda, like what happened uh, in, the, in November last year. And so if, if now DRC is part of this community, there's better cooperation, there's better, uh, better organization between these countries, I think that the chances are good that there will be better coordination on the military front, but also should they then decide to bring in uh, the the humanitarian side and the uplifting and, and et cetera, et cetera, like the other projects that I mentioned, then I think it will be much better coordinated with the DRC in the fold of the EAC. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Really appreciate it that there is a senior training coordinator for the ENACT program. Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion on uh, the current security situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the joining of the East African community by the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, that report uh, was issued by the South African Broadcasting Corporation. I want to thank our colleagues at the SABC for sharing uh, that report. Uh, right now, we want to move into another report from the Republic of South Africa, from the KwaZulu-Natal province around Durban, where there's been extensive flooding uh, that has uh, resulted in at least uh, over 400 uh, confirmed uh, fatalities. Thousands upon thousands of people have been displaced uh, in that region. Let's listen uh, to an update on this uh, situation in the Republic of South Africa in the Durban in and around the Durban uh, port city of South Africa. This hour, we're doing a very special focus, and it is on climate change and, of course, the floods in KwaZulu-Natal. So today, we've got our reporters all over the place. Simpiwe Mwane is in Umgaba-Gaba. Griselda Lewis is in Tuzuma. That's where she's based. And Bongani Gema is in Durban. So we have the province covered. We've got all of our our special reporters that are out and about today. Let me begin with Simpiwe. Simpiwe, good morning to you. Talk to us about the area that you're in and how badly affected it was for these, uh, in the flooding. Well, a very good morning to you, Sakina. Well, as KwaZulu-Natal continues to pick up the pieces and count the losses brought about by the devastation of the recent floods. Now, the, the small community of Danganya in Umkababa, south of Durban, have been left with so many unanswered questions uh, because of a, a phenomenon that they've never seen or heard of before. Now, this church, Lien, behind me, uh, physically moved from its initial location and moved downhill for about 30 meters to where it is now. 
somehow without a single crack on the wall. Now, while, uh, while other surrounding buildings have been completely destroyed uh, by the recent floods, well, some residents have looked at this through uh, a Christian and I would say a religious point of view, and uh, some client experts say that it's a result of the disturbances in the slope, well, uh, a shifting of tectonic plates, as it were. So we'll be speaking to some of the residents here about their experiences and where they've been moved and whether they've, be, they've had any assistance from the government. We'll also be chatting to the councillor a little later on. A very good morning to you. I'm Sim Piwengon. We're coming to you live from Umkababa, south of Durban. We're going to move on to the other side now. We're going to Nduzuma, where my colleague Griselda Lewis is standing by. Griselda, good morning. Well, a very good morning uh, to our colleagues uh, back in Auckland Park, uh, Sakina Kamwendo, as well as Leanne Manis, and of course to you, uh, Sipi, we're out uh, there in Umkababa. I'm alive in Nduzuma uh, D, and this is where, uh, as you drive into this particular area, uh, the devastation uh, you can absolutely see as you drive into this area, not just uh, Ntuzuma D that's been affected. I understand Ntuzuma F as well and other areas where uh, there are scores of residents that have had to be taken uh, to uh, community halls in order for them to find shelter. Because as you can see here around me, uh, this area which has been under development, and I'll show you in just a moment, has been severely affected by the recent uh, floods. Residents, uh, as you've indicated, where you are, are simply where just as much here residents are trying to pick up the pieces of their lives hoping that they will uh, get some assistance uh, with regard uh, to um, you know permanent uh, places to stay uh, clean up operations here as well just a few moments ago I saw some young children uh, head off to school as they head off to school their parents remain behind if they're unemployed and are certainly uh, looking at ways to try and put these pieces uh, back together here where I am you can see this particular uh, home here uh, also washed away uh, in the recent uh, floods. Uh, if you take a look towards uh, this particular direction, I'm going to ask my colleague, uh, you'll see, very early morning, uh, the, the purpose here, this gentleman uh, using his pick, uh, trying to clear some of the rubble uh, that is uh, right here next to his house, right near where the devastation itself is taking place. You wake up every single morning, and this is a constant reminder of the devastation that has affected the lives of these people. In just a moment, I'm going to speak to Umam Jali. Umam Jali is uh, uh, one of the residents whose home was completely uh, uh, um, you know, uh, removed from its uh, surface, where it had basically been. I'm going to move towards her while my colleague Tulo Monare shows you some of the devastation around this particular area. In just a moment, I'll have that conversation with uh, Umam Chali, and she'll show us exactly where her home was, completely washed away. There's absolutely nothing left there. I'm going to speak now to Umam Chali, and she's going to join me in just a second. Umam Chali, so
sasa sisi mwanu onge nani mabeze wa shalila ngeza soguti ishalinga lena kwa ngeza soguti isi mosala vele ngegaza kwa azuguti noma ngabe kituwa baya tatuwa umama eba isa ala pogui wakone holo kishala kona banyi ngega kwa azinguba umundo itseli sabuti mwona kahambi kashalinga lekaya bambi nchene kona joba wae shumtuwa nangeli nilanguti bambi nchene kona nami nenga nene ngota ngatinge ngize ngubala shengoba inga nigama angwazu singbala tatueta geza kube lapana ende ngoze kubelu msimo singa tisolunga nini nnebeskala nga kwa ngazi genko siyami noma besina sisa gala ini kate kusana mantila kwa ngabona ngabona manja na kubeli nchabati ezi ngombana ngazi nima mshambe besina sisa gala uti skwazi uti kutulele gelapa lomhosha la peza nchisi ya saba sibona ngati mshampu kona kona laitu zani kumitwana ngobelo kanyamala laina gachula gali Uh, just some of the concerns that are being raised uh, there by uh, community members. Talking about how they've been left devastated uh, by uh, what has taken place here. Yeah, we're going to uh, cross to my colleague Mongani Gema in just a second, but I'm just going to ask my colleague uh, Tulumonare to take a look at uh, where this is. There was a structure that was in front, right in front of us here, where you can see uh, this is where the house was completely washed away from. There's nothing left there. When I walked in and Mamjali uh, asked me, or showed me in fact, where uh, the structure was, I simply couldn't believe it because it does not look like there was anything there. And that shows the extent of the damage here and the force at which the water had moved towards this direction and washed away some of uh, these homes. In just a moment, let's go to Bongani Kema now. Uh, we'll come back again in just uh, a few moments. We'll continue our live broadcast from these various areas. I'll speak to community leaders as well about what exactly is going to be done in this area. I do know as well that the Deputy Minister of Home Affairs is also going to be in this area a little bit later on uh, this uh, morning, and he's going to be assessing in terms of, you would see, people have lost their clothes, they've lost their IDs, they've lost those belongings that they need. So what's going to be done by Home Affairs to ensure that uh, the all crucial documents like your IDs uh, will, be, will be replaced for these communities that are grieving and trying to pick up the pieces of uh, their lives. Uh, Bongani, let's go over to you uh, at this time. Good morning to you, Criselda, Simpiwe and Lien in studio. We are coming to you bright and early from the disaster command center here at the Virginia Airport in Tepe. Now, I just step out of shots so that my colleague can just show you uh, the certain rescue personnel who are getting ready for their day's operation after a brief night's rest. As you can see, that is where they get their command. They are getting ready today. You can see getting them getting their equipment off the truck that they use uh, to do their operation. I just asked my colleagues to just show you the aircraft that have been parked here. Uh, earlier when we arrived, you saw them just uh, washing them off, so I, I guess they want to be clean for their operations today. Some of them getting coffee, you know, so they are all fit and ready with clean equipment to prepare for their day's mission. We've been fortunate enough to be part of their rescue missions. You'll remember this, we brought you a story in Umzinyasi where they rescued a body from the Umzinyasi for that body had to be 
airlifted from the uh, from the waterfall up to the ground. But let, for, for a quick interview, let me just bring Dr. Emitia Suleiman, who's part of these operations here. His team is also based here at the Virginia Airport. Doc, thank you very much for your time. I've been part of the rescue operations in two separate incidents. I've I've met some of your team members out on the operation. Just briefly, give, uh, bring us on speed in, in terms of the operation, how they are going. The operations are going well, but you know, it's more about giving people hope. It's not so much about, uh, it's not about recovery anymore. It's not about rescue anymore. It's more about recovery. For the last week or so, people have been waiting for closure. People, I mean, I've mentioned the story many times already, that ladies were sitting on the edge of the river in, in, in Inanda, and they, we asked them, what are you doing there? And they said they're waiting for bodies to float down so they can catch them. And that's the sentiment going throughout the different areas, Inanda, Mulvaney, Dustin Hook, many similar areas, Waibank, have been affected by major loss of, of life, and the numbers are far higher than that has been reported. And the teams, when they go there, people call you, they tell you, you know what, we saw your team, are they coming down to my side? You know, we need to find my son, we need to find my daughter. It's more about giving hope. And they sort of realize, you know what, you're not going to recover anymore. In, in mud and in water, you're not going to recover anybody. But just the fact that you're going there gives people hope. And hope is about closure and giving person a dignified funeral. If the terrain is very tough, there's too much of mud there, there's too much of boulders. And in some cases, of course, we're finding bodies that are decomposed. So, you know, all uh, congratulations. It's not only gifts of the givers. It's teams from everywhere that have come from Cape Town, Limpopo, Free State, Gauteng. You know, we thank everybody who had worked in Easter weekend, the SAPS here, the Defence Force, the K-9, everybody. This is a huge effort, and we thank everybody and their families for making a great sacrifice to unite the country, to work in the interests of the country and cater them. Briefly, talk before I let you go, you know, oftentimes we forget about the well-being of the personnel that we expect to bring our loved ones back home. I understand they are professional. Just, just speak to us maybe about their psychological uh, mindsets now as they are going through this. A lot of people, you know, it's called secondary traumatization, where people go and help somebody else. But in the process, when they get emotionally involved, and that's the danger in this kind of work, when you're a policeman or a fireman, you know, a search and rescue personnel, the biggest danger is to get emotionally involved. I know that when I take my teams to disaster zones all over the world, that's the first thing I brief them about. But they are human. You know, they get attached, they feel sorry, they feel the sadness. And I know my teams, when they were in Haiti, at one point they broke down. And the problem was, there was a school that's 800 children buried, died, all died, in a Catholic school and in the church. And all they did was bringing out bodies to the extent that the dog got depressed. Can you understand that the dog got depressed because it was only getting bodies out? And to make the dog happy, they actually put one of their own people alive in the ground. So when the dog, they'd say, find, and the dog found a live person, which is, you know, a mock-up thing. So the depression is difficult, and they, of course, they will need counseling if, if people are mature enough for that. The people themselves need counseling, but it's not the right time now. So, yes, it can affect people working in this kind of situation, especially when you see so many bodies. Dr. Emitia Suleiman, founder of Gift of the Givers, thank you very much for your time. So now, we also have Lifeline here, an organization that has partnered with the SABC to bring counseling, trauma counseling to affected people. I have with me the director of Lifeline, Chesitain Pravisha. Dana Palan, uh, thank you very much for your time. Just briefly speak to us about the work that you do. Thank you so much. Uh, Lifeline Durban is basically uh, an NPO based here in Durban. We affiliated Lifeline South Africa. Our core business is uh, emotional wellness. 
So we focus on counseling and psychosocial support, you know, with all age groups, with all communities. We have social workers that are based at all the hospitals and all the police stations. So this is how we've been able to link up with the victims and the families and provide them with the, the necessary psychosocial support. Obviously, the basic needs had to be met initially, and then we formed the second level of intervention in terms of the psychosocial support. But it was not just that that was the victims and their families, but it was also the frontline workers. We found that we intervened more at that level currently in the last weekend and the last two weeks in terms of providing psychosocial support to those frontline workers that have been there 24-7. Now, we understand that uh, the public broadcasters partnered with the organization. Maybe speak to us about that partnership. Yes, thank you. That, that partnership exists on a national level, so we are very extremely grateful for the CSI support from SABC and Lifeline National. We as Lifeline Centers are all affiliated to Lifeline South Africa, and this is how that sort of ripples through and that you know, gets to the centers in terms of how we all benefit from this. Now, how, how can people who may want to, your assistance get in touch with you? So basically, we have a Lifeline Center in every province. And here at Lifeline Durban, we're based in Morningside in Durban, we have a local uh, uh, crisis line as well as a national crisis helpline. Thank you very much, Rosam. Well, that was Paravisha Dapalan, who is the director of Lifeline KZN. Now, let me just step out of short. Uh, my colleague will show you the personnel who are now getting ready, as I said, for their day's work. I guess this is a roll call to see if they are all here. They are all getting their command, being prepped for their day's work. You know, we are bringing you this broadcast as a day when today uh, Officer Mjoaka is being laid to rest in Pizza Marisbeck. You know, she was one of the officers who were part of the rescue mission in Pizza Marisbeck. She had troubles breathing when she was busy in a river in Henley, in the Henley Dam, uh, and unfortunately she passed away. We also know that K9 Lear also passed away in one of the operations. So I guess it, today is very a hard day for them, but I guess they will continue with the work because this is what they are here for. Back to you in studio. All right, Bengali, thanks very, very much. We'll, of course, uh, continue to cross over to Simpiwe as well as Criselda. As we say, the focus this morning is on what is happening in KwaZulu-Natal, the rescue operations, and, of course, uh, some of the stories of the aftermath of that disaster. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, that was a report on uh, the current uh, humanitarian crisis in uh, the KwaZulu-Natal province of uh, the Republic of South Africa, where flooding over the last uh, two weeks uh, has uh, killed uh, more than 400 people, as has been documented so far, and displaced uh, tens of thousands of others. And uh, we've been covering uh, this humanitarian uh, disaster and climate change uh, crisis uh, over uh, the uh, Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, we're going to uh, take a break, and uh, we'll, of course, uh, be back uh, with more of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Uh, And, of course, uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for... Saturday, uh, April 23rd, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll be back. 
Saturday evening, uh, April 23rd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit 
Uh, right now, we're going to go back uh, to our news reports. This one is on the attacks against uh, Palestinian uh, Muslim worshipers uh, in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is located in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, this report uh, is from earlier today. Welcome back, Israeli police in full riot gear have stormed a sensitive Jerusalem holy site sacred to Jews and Muslims. The attack on Friday comes after Palestinian youth hurled stones at a gate where they were stationed. The renewed violence at the site, which is sacred to Jews and Muslims, came despite Israel temporarily halting Jewish visits, which are seen by the Palestinians as a provocation. Palestinians and Israeli police have been regularly clashing at the site over the last week. This comes at a time of heightened tensions following a string of deadly attacks inside Israel and arrest raids in the occupied West Bank. Three rockets have been fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel. The string of events has raised fears of a repeat of last year when protests and violence in Jerusalem eventually boiled over, helping to ignite the 11-day Gaza war and communal violence in Israel's mixed cities. Tens of thousands of Muslim worshippers are expected at the site later today for the main weekly prayers as they observe the holy month of Ramadan. We speak now about this uh, issue further. We're joined by Abram Fisher, who Brian Hanukkah, apologies, who is uh, from Human Rights. He's an activist and board member for Africa for Palestine. A very good evening to you and thank you so much for joining us. So, uh, Brian, let's just first start with um, the latest on this issue. We've seen the Arab League calling on uh, Israel to cease and desist uh, to end Jewish prayers inside the compound. Talk to us about just how much is this tension growing within the region? I think that... um Fairly frequently, Israel does uh, absolutely grotesque and unacceptable things to try to provoke the Palestinian people, uh, and in a sense to try to beat them while they're down. Uh, it's clear that the Palestinians have had their dignity and their freedoms and their human rights violated, um, and international law being ignored in the process for a very long time. But this particular month is a very, very important month for the Muslim community, and it's uh, an absolute act of provocation to interfere with one's religious sites uh, during this month. Mm. And I want to talk about worshipping there at uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and uh, the agreements that had been made previously, especially about uh, Israeli or Jewish worshippers there. We understand uh, that ultra-nationalists uh, uh, Jews are being allowed to um, pray at the site, but wasn't there an agreement that this would not occur? It's very clear that um, that this particular mosque uh, is being abused um, in an extreme manner to try uh, provoke the very dignity and being of the Palestinian people. Um, Agreements that there should be respect or um, 
decent behavior around the holy site of Al-Aqsa have been totally ignored. Uh, many, many pro- wing, protests by right-wing, racist, and extremely Islamophobic uh, illegal settlers have transpired uh, outside and, and, and even on the premise of the mosque. Uh, and it's, it's just a, a really painful um, experience to witness uh, Palestinians going through, and it's uh, not the first time and won't be the last time. Uh, the Israeli people... Um, and the nation of, of, of Israel um, should not be allowed to, to, to behave in such a manner. Uh, international law has been violated frequently, and now the very essence of uh, one's hope, one's belief in God, in fact, is being interfered with uh, really uh, despicable and unacceptable behavior that's happening there. Okay. So this is the justification of the Israeli police. Uh, They say that uh, after rock throwing began, they waited until after early morning prayers had finished before entering the compound. However, there is video footage showing the police firing at a group of journalists holding cameras and loudly identifying themselves as members of the press. I'd like to hear your thoughts about it because, as you mentioned, the actions have been considered provocations. The Arab League has said that, and we know that at least three Palestinian reporters were also injured uh, by rubber bullets during this occasion. Absolutely. Um, I think the lies have short legs, and I think that uh, the real motive and real reason for um, trying to, um, or not even trying, for doing what the Israeli police have done and the Israeli government have done, uh, I believe is to try to destroy the spirit and the the values of uh, a people's to You've taken their land, you've taken their democracy away, you've taken their freedoms away, and now their religion and their religious sites are to be turned into war zones or acts of violence uh, are meant to be associated with uh, their place of prayer. Um, No government with its high amount of uh, military and policing uh, ammunition and strength uh, should be interfering with people who merely want to go and exercise their right of religion and pray. Uh, for goodness sake, the Israelis have taken the land. They've taken so much from the Palestinian people. They've been bombing and murdering and killing and abusing the Palestinian people. Um, and yet, that's not enough. They need to uh, try to destroy the spirit of the Palestinian people. And I think... Uh, it has again and has and will always provoke a reaction, um, but it's really revolting. Journalists are correct uh, to 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 um, want to honestly show coverage of what has transpired. I mean, David and Goliath, David threw the stone against the giant. Uh, it's clear that Palestinians merely want their right of religion and their their spirit. Uh, to exist so that they may hope for a better world. Okay, we'll talk about the land in just a moment. We are showing visuals as you speak of uh, what occurred there. Israeli police saying that uh, 
uh, Hamas flag uh, waving youths were actually stockpiling stones before dawn and this is why they went in. But there's also a video showing, um, you know, the elderly, you know, Palestinians urging the youths to stop throwing rocks, but they were ignored. But my question is, is there a sense that Palestinians as a collective are being punished for these actions, perceived or not? Where does one draw the line? And if we're talking about the right for uh, individuals to enjoy uh, religious freedoms, so if this occurs while you're praying, you know, without judgment, just share with us, when do you say there are two sides to the story where there is sheer provocation as uh, uh, what the Arab League says? When a extremely vulnerable uh, a person, be it a toddler, uh, gets beaten by a parent, for example, terribly beaten to the point of death, uh, no one really questions and asks, what did the toddler do? Um, the Palestinians are oppressed by one of the biggest militaries in the world, supported fully by the United States of America that uh, seems to see the human rights of Ukrainians, but unable to see the human rights of the Palestinian people, and even worse, they finance and support and fund uh, Israel's uh, abuse of Palestinian people. So I would say that if you and your family have had land stolen from you, if you and your family have experienced dispossession, uh, as your family would have done in our history here, uh, I think uh, when your family has lost everything and they merely want to pray at a historical site where they always pray in an extremely important religious month and the oppressor wants to come and bully you and tell you when and how you can pray and interfere on that rare moment of uh, a dignity where your spirit and your dreams and hopes can be uh, um, shared with your, your higher being. Uh, I, I think that uh, um, the stones are quite insignificant and uh, really quite insulting to see global media talk of stones uh, when the Palestinians' mosques are being right, interfered right. with and attacked, okay. uh, and the same international media ignoring the guns of Ukrainians. Thank you. I, I, was, I was actually going to get to that when you talk about land, but just very quickly, yes. so the Jordanian foreign minister, along with the Palestinians, as we mentioned, said that the Israelis are breaking an age-old agreement that non-Muslims can visit but not pray there. Could an agreement of Israelis not praying there over the next couple of days help quell the tensions there? But as you mentioned, the East Jerusalem was annexed by Israel. And I want to talk about international recognition. Is there equal umbrage as we've seen at the United Nations level over the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, particularly on the issue of land and whose land it is. Thank you for raising it. And I think the SABC have been quite fantastic in raising these questions. I mean, 
there's no doubt that all are not equal when it comes to the UN. There's no doubt that the, the rights, the dignity, and the uh, value of a Ukrainian versus a Palestinian are not equal, according to uh, these superpowers and according to the UN. You see um, Ukrainians fighting and even being given guns uh, by foreign powers to defend their land, uh, uh, the same foreign powers who will criticize um, uh, people for throwing stones uh, in, in, in Palestine in defense of their dignity or land. Uh, so we, 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 we are actually seeing a glaring contradiction, a glaring inconsist- inconsistency, and an unfair application of uh, so-called uh, human rights uh, between two different struggles. Uh, and uh, it's not to say one shouldn't care about the people of Ukraine, we should care about everyone, but it is grossly uh, unfair uh, for for Western powers to even give any attention to stones being thrown uh, when the argument is that uh, another peoples from another religion should be able to and should be actively uh, interfering with an oppressed people in their religious space. In the context, it's real provocation. There shouldn't be these other people around the mosque at this time. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Of course, Israel regards the whole of Jerusalem as its capital and center of Jewish faith. And it says what it's doing is to ensure. Welcome back. And of course, uh, the state of Israel is supported uh, by U.S. imperialism. And they will make any justification for the suppression and, of course, the displacement of the Palestinian people as well as other people in West Asia and North Africa. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 23rd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, the voice and music of Candy Staten uh, with the tune entitled Rock. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, or Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and uh, we're here on Saturday night, uh, April the 23rd, uh, 22. Uh, we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, right now we want to uh, focus on a historic occasion that occurred uh, in the state of April, in the month of April, in the state of Michigan, in the city of Detroit, April 12, 1964, uh, some 58 years ago. Malcolm X uh, addressed an audience at the King Solomon uh, Baptist Church, located on 14th and uh, Marquette on the west side of Detroit. The topic was the ballot or the bullet. And, of course, this was uh, April of 1964. It was an election year. And uh, Malcolm X had just broken uh, with the uh, Nation of Islam. He had formed uh, the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. Uh, In just a short period of time after delivering this address, uh, he traveled uh, to uh, Africa and uh, West Asia as well as Europe on a uh, pilgrimage uh, to Mecca, as well as uh, for discussions uh, with uh, leading officials in various uh, states. And, of course, uh, this uh, led uh, to another trip uh, in July, between July and November of 1964, uh, where he continued his work uh, related uh, to uniting uh, the causes, the demands, and the objectives of African people and oppressed people throughout the entire international community. Let's listen uh, to this historic speech that was delivered in Detroit on April 12th of 1964. Let's listen in. Mr. Moderator, Reverend Cleeg, brothers and sisters, friends, and I see some enemies. I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we had an audience this large and didn't realize that there were some enemies present. This afternoon, we want to talk about the ballot or the bullet. The ballot or the bullet explains itself. But before we get into it, since this is the year of the ballot or the bullet, I would like to clarify some things that refer to me personally concerning my own personal position. I'm still a Muslim. That is, my religion is still Islam. My religion is still Islam. I still credit Mr. Muhammad for what I know and what I am. He's the one who opened my eyes. At present, I'm the minister of the newly founded uh, Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which has its offices in the Teresa Hotel, right in the heart of Harlem. That's the Black Belt in New York City. And when we realize that Adam Clayton Powell is a Christian minister, he's the 
He has Abyssinia Baptist Church, but at the same time, he's more famous for his political struggling. And Dr. King is a Christian minister in Atlanta, from Atlanta, Georgia, or in Atlanta, Georgia, but he's become more famous for being involved in the civil rights struggle. There's another in New York, Reverend Galamison. I don't know if you've heard of him out here. He's a Christian minister from Brooklyn, but has become famous for his fight against the segregated school system in Brooklyn. Reverend Cleve, right here, is a Christian minister here in Detroit. He's the head of the Freedom Now Party. All of these are Christian ministers. All of these are Christian ministers. But they don't come to us as Christian ministers. They come to us as fighters in some other category. I'm a Muslim minister. The same as they are Christian ministers, I'm a Muslim minister. And I don't believe in fighting today in any one front, but on all fronts. In fact, I'm a black nationalist freedom fighter. Islam is my religion, but I believe my religion is my personal business. It governs my personal life, my personal morals, and my religious philosophy is personal between me and the God in whom I believe, just as the religious philosophy of these others is between them and the God in whom they believe. And this is best this way. Were we to come out here discussing religion, we'd have too many differences from the outstart, and we could never get together. So today, though Islam is my religious philosophy, my political, economic, and social philosophy is black nationalism. You and I... As I say, if we bring up religion, we'll have differences, we'll have arguments, we'll never be able to get together. But if we keep our religion at home, keep our religion in the closet, keep our religion between ourselves and our God, but when we come out here, we have a fight that's common to all of us against the enemy who is common to all of us. The political philosophy of black nationalism only means that the black man should control the politics and the politicians in his own community. The, the, time, the time when white people can come in our community and get us to vote for them so that they can be our political leaders and tell us what to do and what not to do is long gone. By the same token, the time when that same white man, knowing that your eyes are too far open, can send another Negro into the community, get you and me to support him so he can use him to lead us astray, those days are long gone. <laughs> the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that if you and I are going to live in a black community, and that's where we're going to live, because as soon as you move into one of their, as soon as you move out of the black community into their community, 
It's missed for a period of time, but they are gone, and you're right there all by yourself. We must, we must understand the politics of our community, and we must know what politics is supposed to produce. We must know what politics play in our lives. And until we become politically mature, we will always be misled, led astray, or deceived or maneuvered into uh, supporting someone politically who doesn't have the good of our community at heart. So the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that we will have to carry on a program, a political program of re-education to open our people's eyes, make us become more politically conscious, politically mature. And then we will, whenever we get ready to cast our ballot, that ballot will be, classed for, uh, will be cast for a man of the community who has the good of the community at heart. And the economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we should own and operate and control the economy of our community. You would never find, you can't open up a black store in a white community, white man won't even patronize you. And he's not wrong. He's, he got sense enough to look out for himself. And you, it's you who don't have sense enough to look out for yourself. The white man, the white man is too intelligent to let someone else come and gain control of the economy of his community. But you will let anybody come in and control the economy of your community. Control the housing, control the education, control the jobs, control the businesses uh, under the pretext that you want to integrate. No, you're out of your mind. The political, the economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we have to become involved in a program of re-education to educate our people into the importance of knowing that when you spend your dollar out of the community in which you live, the community uh, in which you spend your money becomes richer and richer, the community out of which you take your money becomes poorer and poorer. And because these Negroes who have been misled, misguided, are breaking their necks to take their money and spend it with the man. The man is becoming richer and richer, and you're becoming poorer and poorer. And then what happens? The community in which you live becomes a slum. It becomes a ghetto. The conditions become run down. And then you have the audacity to, com to complain about poor housing in a run-down community. Why, you run it down yourself when you take your dollar. And you and I are in a double track because not only do we lose by taking our money someplace else and spending it, when we try and spend it in our own community, we're trapped because we haven't had sense enough to set up stores and control the businesses of our community. The man who's controlling the stores in our community is a man who doesn't look like we do. He's a man who doesn't even live in the community. So you and I, even when we try and spend our money in the block where we live or the area where we live, we're spending it with a man who, when the sun goes down, takes that basket full of money in another part of the town. So we're trapped, trapped, double trapped, triple trapped. Anywhere we go, we find that we're trapped. And every kind of solution that someone comes up with is just another trap. But the political and economic philosophy of black nationalism 
The economic philanthropy of black nationalism shows our people the importance of setting up these little stores and developing them and expanding them into larger operations. Woolworth didn't start out big like they are today. They started out with a dime store and expanded and expanded and expanded until today they're all over the country and all over the world and they're getting some of everybody's money. Now, this is what you and I and General Motors, the same way, didn't start out like it is. It started out just a little rat race type operation. And it expanded and expanded until today is where it is right now. And you and I have to make a start. And the best place to start is right in the community where we live. So our people not only have to be uh, re-educated to the importance of supporting black business, but the black man himself has to be uh, made aware of the importance of going into business. And once you and I go into business, we own and operate at least the businesses in our community, what we will be doing is developing a situation wherein we will actually be able to create employment for the people in the community. And once you can create some, I mean, some employment in the community where you live, it will eliminate the necessity of you and me having to act ignorantly and disgracefully boycotting and picketing some cracker someplace else trying to bang him for a job. Anytime you have to rely upon your enemy for a job, you're in bad shape. When you and he is your enemy, anything you wouldn't be in this country if some enemy hadn't kidnapped you and brought you here. On the other hand, some of you think you came here on the Mayflower. So as you can see, uh, uh, brothers and sisters. Today, this afternoon, it's not our intention to discuss religion. Uh, we, we're going to forget religion. If we bring up religion, we'll be in an argument. And the best way to uh, keep away from arguments and differences, as I said earlier, put your religion at home, in the closet. Keep it between you and your God. Because if it hasn't done anything more for you than it has, you need to forget it anyway. Whether you, are, whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or a nationalist, we all have the same problem. They don't hang you because you're a Baptist, they hang you because you're black. They don't attack me because I'm a Muslim, they attack me because I'm black. They attack all of us for the same reason. All of us catch hell from the same enemy. We're all in the same bag in the same boat. We suffer political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation, all of them from the same enemy. The government has failed us. You can't deny that. Anytime you live in the 20th century, 1964, and you walking around here singing, we shall overcome, the government has failed us. This is part of what's wrong with you. You do too much singing. 
Today it's time to stop singing and start swinging. You can't sing up on freedom, but you can swing up on some freedom. Cassius Clay can sing, but singing didn't help him to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Swinging helped him. But this government has failed us. The government itself has failed us. And the white liberals who have been posing as our friends have failed us. And once we see that all these other sources to which we've turned have failed, we stop turning to them and turn to ourselves. We need a self-help program, a do-it-yourself do philosophy, a do-it-right-now philosophy, uh, it's already too late philosophy. This is what you and I need to get with. And the only time, the only way we're going to uh, solve our problem is with a self-help program. Before we can get a self-help program started, we have to have a self-help philosophy. Black nationalism is a self-help philosophy. What's so good about it, you can stay right in the church where you are and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. You can stay in any kind of civic organization that you belong to and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. You can be an atheist and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. This is a philosophy that eliminates the necessity for division and argument. Because if you're black, you should be thinking black. And if you're black and you're not thinking black at this late date, well, I'm sorry for you. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your, your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. As long as you've got a sit-down philosophy, you'll have a sit-down thought pattern. And as long as you think that old sit-down thought, you'll be uh, in some kind of sit-down action. They'll have you sitting in everywhere. It's not so good to refer to what you're going to do as a sit-in. That right there castrates you. Right there it brings you down. What, what goes with it? What, think of the image of a, someone sitting. An old woman can sit. An old man can sit. A chump can sit. A coward can sit. Anything can sit. Well, you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time today for us to start doing some standing and some fighting to back that up. When we look at other parts of this earth upon which we live, we find that black, brown, red, and yellow people in Africa and Asia are getting their independence. They're not getting it by singing, We Shall Overcome. No, they're getting it through nationalism. It is nationalism that brought about the independence of the people in Asia. Every nation in Asia gained its independence through the philosophy of nationalism. Every nation on the African continent that has gotten its independence brought it about through the philosophy of nationalism. And it will take black nationalism that to bring about the freedom of 22 million Afro-Americans here in this country where we have suffered colonialism for the past 400 years. America 
America is just as much a colonial power as England ever was. America is just as much a colonial power as France ever was. In fact, America is more so a colonial power than they, because she's a hypocritical colonial power behind it. What is 20th, what, what do you call second-class citizenship? Why, that's colonization. Second-class citizenship is nothing but 20th century slavery. How are you going to tell me you're a second-class citizen? They don't have second-class citizenship in any other government on this earth. They just have slaves and people who are free. Well, this country is a hypocrite. They try and make you think they set you free by calling you a second-class citizen. No, you're nothing but a 20th century slave. Just as it took nationalism to move, to remove colonialism from Asia and Africa, it'll take black nationalism today to remove colonialism from the backs and the minds of 22 million Afro-Americans here in this country. And 1964 looks like it might be the year of the ballot or the bullet. Why does it look like it might be the year of the ballot or the bullet? Because Negroes have listened to the trickery and the lies and the false promises of the white man now for too long. And they're fed up. They've become disenchanted. They've become disillusioned. They've become dissatisfied. And all of this has built up frustrations in the black community that makes the black community throughout America today more explosive than all of the atomic bombs the Russians can ever invent. Whenever you got a racial powder keg sitting in your lap, you're in more trouble than if you had an atomic powder keg sitting in your lap. When a racial powder keg goes off, it doesn't care who, it knocks out the way. Understand this, it's dangerous. And in 1964, this seems to be the year. Because what can the white man use now to fool us? After he put down that march on Washington, and you see all through that now, he tricked you, had you marching down to Washington. Yes, had you marching back and forth between the feet of a dead man named Lincoln and another dead man named George Washington, singing, We Shall Overcome. He made a chump out of him. He made a fool out of him. He made you think you were going somewhere and you end up going nowhere but to between Lincoln and Washington. So today our people are disillusioned. They've become disenchanted. They've become dissatisfied. And in their frustrations they want action. You'll see this young black man, this new generation, Asking for the ballot or the book. That old Uncle Tom action is outdated. The young generation don't want to hear anything about the odds are against us. What do we care about odds? When this country here was first being founded, there were 13 colonies. The, the whites were colonized. They were fed up with this taxation without representation. So 
some of them stood up and said, liberty or death. Though I went to a white school over here in Mason, Michigan, the white man made the mistake of letting me read his history books. He made the mistake of teaching me that Patrick Henry was a patriot and George Washington wasn't nothing non-violent about old Pat or George Washington. Liberty or death was what brought about the freedom of whites in this country from the English. They didn't care about the arts. Why, they faced the wrath of the entire British Empire. And in those days, they used to say that the British Empire was so vast and so powerful when the sun, the sun would never set on it. This is how big it was. Yet these 13 little scrawny states, tired of taxation without representation, tired of being exploited and oppressed and degraded, told that big British Empire, liberty or death. And here you have 22 million Afro-American black people today catching more hell than Patrick Henry ever saw. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, in case you don't know it, that you got a new, you got a new generation of black people in this country who don't care anything whatsoever about us. They don't want to hear you, old Uncle Tom, handkerchief head, talking about uh, the honor. No. This is a new generation. If they're going to draft these young black men and send them over to Korea or South Vietnam to face 800 million Chinese. If you're not afraid of those odds, you shouldn't be afraid of these odds. Why is America, why does this loom to be such an explosive political year? Because this is the year of politics. This is the year when all of the white politicians are going to come into the Negro community. You never see them until election time. You can't blame them until election time. They're going to come in with false promises. And as they make these false promises, they're going to feed our frustrations. And this will only serve to make matters worse. I'm no politician. I'm not even a student of politics. I'm not a Republican, nor a Democrat, nor an American. And got sense enough to know it. I'm one of the 22 million black victims of the Democrats. One of the 22 million black victims of the Republicans and one of the 22 million black victims of Americanism. And when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican. I speak as a victim of America's so-called democracy. You and I have never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. When we open our eyes today and look around America, we see America not through the eyes of someone who has, who has enjoyed the fruits of Americanism. We see America through the eyes of someone who has been the victim of Americanism. We don't see any American dream. 
We've experienced only the American nightmare. We haven't benefited from America's democracy. We've only suffered from America's hypocrisy. And the generation that's coming up now can see it. And I'm not afraid to say it. If, if you go to jail, so what? If you're black, you were born in jail. If you're black, you were born in jail. In the North as well as the South. Stop talking about the South. Long as you south of the long as you south of the Canadian border, you're south. Don't call Governor Wallace a Dixie governor. Romney is a Dixie governor. Twenty-two million black victims of Americanism are waking up. And they're gaining a new political consciousness, becoming politically mature. And as they become, uh, develop this political maturity, they're able to see the recent trends in these uh, political elections. They see that the whites are so evenly divided that every time they vote, uh, the race is so close, they have to go back and count the votes all over again. And it, it, which means that any block, any minority that has a block of votes that stick together is in a strategic position. Either way you go, that's who gets it. You're, you're in a position to determine who go to the White House and who stay in the doghouse. You're the one who has that power. You can keep Johnson in Washington, D.C., or you can send him back to his Texas cotton patch. You're the one who sent Kennedy to Washington. You're the one who put the present Democratic administration in Washington, D.C. The whites were evenly divided. It was the fact that you threw 80% of your votes behind the Democrats that put the Democrats in the White House. The, when you see this, you can see that the Negro vote is the key factor. And despite the fact that you are in a position to, to be the determining factor, what do you get out of it? The Democrats have been in Washington, D.C. only because of the Negro vote. They've been down there four years. And all other legislation they wanted to bring up, they brought it up and gotten it out of the way, and now they bring up you. And now they bring up you. You put them first, and they put you last. Because you're a chump. political chunk. In Washington, D.C., in the House of Representatives, there are 257 who are Democrats. Only 177 are Republicans. In the Senate, there are 67 uh, Democrats. Only 33 are Republicans. The party that you back controls two-thirds of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and still they can't keep their promise to you, because you're a chump. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. Yeah. 
And what kind of alibi do they come up with? They try and pass the buck to the Dixiecrats. Now, back during the days when you were blind, deaf, and dumb, ignorant, politically immature, naturally you went along with that. But today, as your eyes come open and you develop political maturity, you're able to see and think for yourself. And you can see that a Dixiecrat is nothing but a Democrat in disguise. You look at the structure of the uh, government that controls this country. It's controlled by 16 senatorial committees and 20 congressional committees. Of the 16 senatorial committees that run the government, 10 of them are in the hands of Southern segregationists. Of the 20 congressional committees that run the government, 12 of them are in the hands of Southern segregationists. And they're going to tell you and me that the South lost the war. They have, are in the hands of a government of segregationists, racists, white supremacists, who belong to the Democratic Party but disguise themselves as Dixocrats. A uh, Dixocrat is nothing but a Democrat. Whoever runs the Democrats is also the father of the Dixocrats. And the father of all of them is sitting in the White House. You got a president who's nothing but a southern segregationist. From the state of Texas, they'll lynch you in Texas as quick as they'll lynch you in Mississippi. Only in, in Texas, they lynch you with a Texas accent. In Mississippi, they lynch you with a Mississippi accent. And the first thing the cracker does when he comes in power, he takes all the Negro leaders and invites them for a coffee. <laughs> to show that he's all right. And those Uncle Toms can't pass up the coffee. from the coffee table telling you and me that this man is all right because he's from the south and since he's from the south he can deal with the south and look at the logic that they're using what about Eastland he's from the south make him the president he can, if, if Johnson is a good man because he's from Texas and, it, and being from Texas well, if, if Johnson is a good man because he's from Texas and, it, and being from Texas will enable him to deal with the South, Eastland can deal with the South better than Johnson. <laughs> oh, I say, you've been misled. You've been had. You've been took. a couple of weeks ago while the senators were filibustering and I noticed in the back of the Senate a huge map and on this map it showed the distribution of Negroes in America and surprisingly the same senators that were involved in the filibuster were from the states where there were the most Negroes why were they filibustering the civil rights legislation because the civil rights legislation is supposed to guarantee voting rights to Negroes in those states 
And those senators from those states know that if the Negroes in those states can vote, those senators are down the drain. The representatives of those states go down the drain. And in the Constitution of this country, it has a stipulation wherein whenever the rights, the voting rights of people in a certain district are violated, then the representative who rep who's from that particular district, according to the Constitution, is supposed to be expelled from the Congress. Now, if this particular aspect of the Constitution was enforced, why, you wouldn't have a cracker in Washington, D.C. The Dixocrat, you're expelling the Democrat. When you destroy the power of the Dixocrat, you're destroying the power of the Democratic Party. So how in the world can the Democratic Party in the South actually side with you in sincerity when all of its power is based in the, in the South? These Northern Democrats are in cahoots with the Southern Democrats. They're playing a giant con game, a political con game. You know how it goes. One of, the, one of them comes to you and make bleeding for you. And he's in cahoots with the other one that's not for you. Why? Because neither one of them is for you. But they got to make you go with one of them or the other. So this is a con game. And this is what they've been doing with you and me all these years. First thing Johnson got off the plane when he became president, he asked, where's Dickie? You know who Dickie is? Dickie is old, Southern cracker Richard, Ru Richard Russell. Look here, yes. Lyndon D. Johnson's best friend is the one who is ahead, who's heading the forces that are filibustering civil rights legislation. You tell me how in the hell is he going to be Johnson's best friend? Johnson be his friend and your friend too. No, that man is too tricky. Especially if his friend is still old Dickie. Whenever the Negroes keep the Democrats in power, they're keeping the Dixocrats in power. This is true. A vote for a Democrat is nothing but a vote for a Dixocrat. I know you don't like me saying that. But I who come here to say what you like. I'm going to tell you the truth whether you like it or not. <laughs> Up here in the North, you have the same thing. The Democratic Party don't, don't do it. Doesn't, they don't do it that way. They got a thing that they call gerrymandering. They, they maneuver you out of power. Even though you can vote, they fix it so you're voting for nobody. <laughs> you going and coming. In the South, they're outright political wolves. In the North, they're political foxes. A fox and a wolf are both canine. Both belong to the dog family. Now, you take your choice. You're going to choose a northern dog or a southern dog. Because he's a dog you choose, I guarantee you, you'll still be in the doghouse. <laughs> this is why I say it's the ballot or the bullet. It's liberty or death. It's 
freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. America today finds herself in a unique situation. Historically, revolutions are bloody. Oh, yes, they are. They have never had a bloodless revolution or a non-violent revolution. That don't happen even in Hollywood. You don't have a revolution in which you love your enemy. And you don't have a revolution in which you are begging the system of exploitation to integrate you into it. Revolutions overturn systems. Revolutions destroy systems. A revolution is bloody. But America is in a unique position. She's the only country in history in a position actually to become involved in a bloodless revolution. The, Re the Russian revolution was bloody. Chinese revolution was bloody. French revolution was bloody. Cuban revolution was bloody. And there was nothing more bloody than the Re American revolution. Today, this country can become involved in a revolution that won't take bloodshed. All she's got to do is give the black man in this country everything that's doing. Everything. I hope that the white man can see this. Because if you don't see it, you're finished. If you don't see it, you're going to become in, you're going to become involved in some action in which you don't have a chance. We don't care anything about your atomic bomb. It's it's useless because other countries have atomic bombs. When two or three different countries have atomic bombs, nobody can use it. So it means that the white man today is without a weapon. If you're gonna, if you want some action, you got to come on down to earth. And there's more black people on earth than there are white people. On earth. a couple more minutes. The white man can never win another war on the ground. His days of war victory, his great his days of background victory, uh oh. Can I prove it? Yes. Take all the action that's going on on this earth right now that he's involved in. Tell me where he's winning. Nowhere. Why some race farmers, some race farmers, some race eaters ran him out of Korea. Yes, they ran him out of Korea. Race eaters with nothing but gym shoes and a rifle and a bowl of rice. <laughs> Took him and his tanks and his napalm and all that other action he's supposed to have and ran him across the Yalu. Why? Because the day that he can win on the ground is past. Up in uh, French Indochina, those little peasants, race growers, took on the might of the French army and ran all the Frenchmen. You remember Den Ben Foo? No! The same thing happened in Algeria, in Africa. They didn't have anything but a rank. The French had all these highly mechanized instruments of warfare. But they put some guerrilla action on and a, and, a, and a white man can't fight a guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla action takes heart, takes nerve, and he doesn't have that. He's ready 
when he's got tanks. He's brave when he's got planes. He's brave when he's got bombs. He's brave when he's got a whole lot of company along with him. But you take that little man from Africa and Asia, turn him loose in the woods with a blade. That's all he needs. All he needs is a blade. And when the sun comes down, goes down, and it's dark, it's even Stephen. with a government conspiracy. This government has failed us. The senators who are filibustering concerning your and my rights, that's the government. Don't say it's southern senators, this is the government. This is the government filibuster. It's not a segregation that's filibuster. It's a government filibuster. Any kind of activity that takes place on the floor of the Congress or the Senate, that's the government. Any kind of dilly-dallying, that's the government. Any kind of pussy pudding, that's the government. Any kind of act that's designed to delay or deprive you and me right now of getting full rights, that's the government that's responsible. And any time you find the government involved in a conspiracy to violate the citizenship or the civil rights of a people, then you are wasting your time going to that government expecting redress. Instead, you have to take that government to the world court and accuse it of genocide and all of the other crimes that it is guilty of today. So those of us whose political and economic and social philosophy is black nationalism have become involved in the civil rights struggle. We have injected ourselves into the civil rights struggle and we intend to expand it from the level of civil rights to the level of human rights. As long as, you, as long as you fight it on the level of civil rights, you're under Uncle Sam's jurisdiction. You're going to his court expecting him to correct the problem. He created the problem. He's the criminal. You don't take your case to the criminal, you take your criminal to court. When the government of South Africa began to trample upon the human rights of the people of South Africa, they were taken to the UN. When the government of Portugal began to trample upon the, the rights of our brothers and sisters in Angola, it was taken before the UN. Why, even the white man took the Hungarian question to the UN, and just this week, Chief Justice Goldberg was crying over uh, three million Jews in Russia about their human rights. Charging Russia with violating the UN Charter because of its uh, mistreatment of the human rights of Jews in Russia. Now you tell me how can the plight of everybody on this earth reach the halls of the United Nations and you have 22 million Afro-Americans whose churches are being bombed, whose little girls are being murdered, whose, whose leaders are being shot down in broad daylight. Now you tell me why the leaders of this struggle have never taken it before the United Nations. So our next move is to take the entire 
struggle, problem, into the United Nations. And let the world see that Uncle Sam is guilty of violating the human rights of 22 million Afro-Americans. And Bill has the audacity or the nerve to stand up and represent himself as the leader of the free world. Not only is he a crook, he's a hypocrite. Here he is standing up in front of other people, Uncle Sam, with the blood of your and my mothers and fathers on his hands, with the blood dripping down his jaws like a bloody jawed wolf. And still got the nerve to point his finger at other countries. You can't even get civil rights legislation. And this man has got the nerve to stand up and talk about South Africa, or talk about Nazi Germany, or talk about Portugal. No, no more days like those. So I say in my conclusion, the only way we're going to solve it, we got to unite in unity and harmony. And black nationalism is the key. How are we going to uh, overcome the tendency to be at each other's throats that always exist in our neighborhood? And the reason this tendency exists, the uh, a strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. He keeps us divided in order to conquer us. He tells you I'm for separation and you for integration and keep us fighting with each other. No, I'm not for separation and you're not for integration. What you and I are for is freedom. Only you think that integration will get you freedom. I think separation will get me freedom. Right. We both got the same objective. We just got different ways of getting at it. Right. So uh, I, I, I studied this man, Billy Green, who preaches white nationalism. That's what he preaches. I say that's what he preaches. The whole church structure in this country is white nationalism. You go inside a white church, that's what they're preaching, white nationalism. They got Jesus white, Mary white, God white, everybody white, that's white nationalism. So what he does, the way he the way he the way he circumvents the the uh, jealousy and envy that he ordinarily would incur among the heads of the church. Whenever you go into an area where the church already is, you're going to run into trouble. Because they got that thing, what you call it, uh, syndicated. So they got a syndicate just like the racketeers had. I'm going to say what's on my mind because the church is already, the preachers already proved to you that they got a syndicate. And when you're out in the rackets, whenever you're getting in another man's territory, you know, they gang up on you. And that's the same way with you. You run into the same thing. So how Billy Graham gets around that, instead of going into somebody else's territory, like he's going to start a new, new church, he, don't, he doesn't try and start a church. He just goes in preaching Christ. And he says, everybody who believes in him, you go, wherever, you go wherever you find him. So this helps all the churches. And so since it helps all the churches, they don't find him. Well, uh, we're going to do the same thing, only our gospel is black nationalism. His gospel is white nationalism, our gospel is black nationalism. And the gospel of black nationalism, as I told you, means you should control your own, the politics of your community, the economy of your community, and all of the society in which you live should be under your control. And, when, and, and once you uh, 
the, the uh, feel that this philosophy will solve your problem, go join any church where that's preached. Don't join a church where white nationalism is preached. Now you can go to a Negro church and dispose of white nationalism. Because when you are, when you walk in a Negro church and a white Mary and some white angels, that Negro church is preaching white nationalism. and you see the pastor of that church with a philosophy and a program that's designed to bring black people together and elevate black people, join that church. Join that church. If you see where the NAACP is preaching and practicing that which is designed to uh, make black nationalism materialize, join the NAACP. Join any kind of organization, civic, religious, fraternal, political, or otherwise, that's based on lifting the black man up and making him master of his own community. the ballot, or it'll be the book. It'll be liberty, or it'll be death. And if you're not ready to pay that price, don't use the word freedom in your vocabulary. Uh, one more thing. I was on a program in uh, Illinois recently with Senator Paul Douglas, a so-called liberal, so-called Democrat, so-called white man. Uh, at, at, at which time he told me that our African brothers we're not interested in us in Africa. He says, the Africans aren't interested in the American Negro. I knew he was lying. But during the next uh, two or three weeks, it's my intention and plan to make a tour of our African homeland. And I hope that when I come back, I'll be able to come back and let you know how our African brothers and sisters feel toward us. And I know before, I go there, that they love us. We're one. We're the same. The same man who has colonized them all these years, colonized you and me too, all these years. And all we have to do now is wake up and work in unity and harmony, and the battle will be over. I want to thank the Freedom Now Party and the Gold. I want to thank uh, Milton and Richard Henry for inviting me here this afternoon, and also Reverend Clegg. And I want them to know that anything that I can ever do at any time to work with anybody uh, in any kind of program that is sincerely designed to eliminate the political, the, the economic, and the social evils that confront all of our people in Detroit and elsewhere, all they got to do is give me a telephone call and I'll be on the next jet right on into the city. Malcolm X, speaking uh, in the city of Detroit, on uh, April 12th, uh, 1964, at the King Solomon Baptist Church on the west side of the city, and located on 14th and uh, Marquette. Uh, and, of course, uh, that speech uh, was a seminal moment uh, in uh, the struggle of the African-American people on an ideological as well as a practical level. Uh, it had widespread implications uh, that lasted uh, for years and still today, 58 years later, uh, during this uh, midterm election year, uh, listening to uh, the ballot or the bullet uh, gives us pause and reflection uh, in regard uh, to the situation and the conditions of the African-American people 
in the United States of African people uh, on the African continent and indeed uh, throughout the entire international community. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, Today is Saturday, uh, April 23rd, 2022. We've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to another edition of our program. If you'd like to have access uh, to today's program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. By logging on to uh, blogtalkradio forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access to today's program for Saturday, April 23rd, uh, 2022, but well over 1,100 other archived editions uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. Now, the Pan-African Journal, the worldwide radio broadcast uh, podcast, can be shared with other potential listeners. All you need to do is copy and paste the links into emails and send those emails out to other potential listeners. You can also uh, share the links uh, on blogs and websites, as well as sharing links through social media networks, such as uh, Facebook and Twitter. This is uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Uh, we're going to be closing out uh, with the music of uh, jazz guitarist Grant Green. Uh, this is from an album uh, entitled Iron City from 1967, uh, the Grant Green Trio. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.